0: Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like him, and live out his mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. All right, well, we are in one of my favorite passages in all of Matthew, Uh, If you're joining us for the first week this week, we've been going through Matthew. We are going through it for the long haul, uh, most likely into 2022. So pretty excited. Hang in there with us. This is uh, one of my most favorite passages, and um, if you've been following along, we we essentially have broken Matthew down into seven parts, and uh, what Matthew does is he's communicating to Jewish people at the time, first century, uh, who were not sure about Jesus, not sure about being Christian. They had had a ton of cultural pressure of the Jewish people and trying to figure out, is this Jesus guy really real? Is he really who he says he is? And uh, I say that in such a way that I could put that same phrase into our culture today. Our culture is really asking, is Jesus really who he says he is? Is he really who, who we want him to be? And so what does it truly mean to follow Jesus, who is Jesus? And so Matthew does that, and what Matthew's doing and what makes it unique is because he's writing to Jews, he's trying to draw on all their past knowledge and what they know, and he's trying to show them the truth in all of that. And so there's five main, they call them discourses, which is a nerdy name for teachings, that he gives in the book of Matthew. And so we're in the first one, and it is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, before we get into it, if you're in Matthew 5, you can turn there, I want to talk about a really awesome artist that you've probably never heard of by the name of Bernard Pross. He's French, he makes sculptures and pictures, and he has a brilliant eye for detail and creativity in one of his best works— is this pile of trash. Now, I know some of you are just like, oh, it's like one of those, like, it's art, you know, where you're like, you just have to appreciate it. You just don't understand. You know, you go to a museum, and there's like some, it's like just a chair sitting there, and it's like roped off, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's like, isn't that brilliant? And you're like, it's a chair. Like, why is it? So sometimes you don't understand art. But this, this is beautiful. And, and the reason why it's beautiful is because this is representative of the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God... It's something we've been talking about when Jesus, in the last few chapters, if you missed a few weeks, you can always re-listen. But uh, it's essentially the kingdom of God is Jesus here now and his reign happening on earth. And so when he comes onto the scene and he's ready to do his public ministry, he, he announces this phrase. He says, repent or turn away from, for the kingdom of God is near. And that idea is that I'm here, I'm the king, I'm in your midst, and let me reveal to you what the kingdom of God truly is. So if you call yourself a follower of Jesus today, you are in and among the kingdom of God. But what's so unique about it is just because you belong in it doesn't mean you just give up and don't know what is the kingdom of God. What does it look like? And so the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, this first teaching Jesus is doing is, he's essentially letting us know, here's what the kingdom of God looks like. Here's what me in the midst of all of you looks like. And in this, we see a pile of trash first, but we'll see something much beautiful, much more beautiful as we go through this. And it's funny because... uh, this Jesus guy, when he first starts doing things and announcing this, he creates a lot of um, different opinions and, and people trying to figure out who is this guy, what is he doing, what's he here for, is he just some weird guy who travels and kind of cons you out of your money or whatever it may be. And, and so what's unique about this is verse 1, when we get into chapter 5, verse 1, it says, when he saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Chapter 4 was kind of this, just before this, just before we see this, uh, Jesus started going around, all around Galilee, this region, and uh, he started healing people, he started to drive out demons, all these crazy, all this crazy stuff, and all these people from everywhere just started flocking to him and trying to figure out, who is this guy, can he, can he heal me, can he heal my family, can, what can he provide for me, and no one really knew, Jesus was kind of mystical at this point, he, he was a little bit ambiguous. Um, but he was preaching this message, right? Turn from the, the kingdom you're building and come join mine, because I'm here and I'm the king of it. And all these people are following him. That's why in verse 1, when we read it, we, we have to remember that when, they, they, when the Bible was assembled, it was not just verse numbers and chapters and headers. It was just all of a, sto- it was a story. So when he saw the crowds, what that means is there were tons of people following him at this point. And you, you think about the people who were following him his crew, if you will, his crowd, was not the people that you would think of. It was, it was crowds who were sick. It was lepers. It was the crazy or mentally insane. It was the paralyzed. It was the demon-possessed. It was most likely the unemployed because who can just leave wherever they're working during the day or whatever and go follow this guy? I mean, imagine if I told you, hey, there's this really cool guy, and he's, and he's giving away free gifts to people who go get him, and, and he, but he only is available during your work hours. You're going to have to take a day of vacation if you really believe in it. Most of you would say, not worth it. So the group of people that are following Jesus is the most ragtag, least effective, and least powerful influential people in this area. And I just cannot imagine. It's almost like you took a hospital and you pulled a fire alarm. And everybody that comes out of the hospital is who is following Jesus. And there's those group of people. There's crowds of them. There's hundreds of them, right? And then there's the disciples who are people that he specifically called, so there's a bunch of people who are coming and seeing. That's Jesus' phrase, is come and see, right? And they're they're coming and they're seeing who he is. There's people he's specifically called to follow him, to walk literally step by step behind him as he does. So he takes all of these crowds, he sees the crowds, and he goes up on a mountain. Now, this is a little bit semantics, but technically it's more so a hill uh, where we know where Capernaum was, the city that they were at, and where he would have retreated to. It's It's a potential that it could be a mountain, but it's most likely that it was hills just outside of the city to where he could, um, in terms of uh, volume, he could speak and project based upon like a hill. So he would speak and the hill would cause the the acoustics to travel and so lots of people could hear him. Um, And so he goes up on this hill and it's similar, like I said, Matthew's drawing in all these, all these crazy Old Testament references, all the things these Jews knew. And, he, and, and so some scholars would say that he's doing this because he's essentially doing what Moses did on Mount Sinai, where he came down, he brought the law of God to the people. Jesus is going up to this mountain, he's bringing the law of Jesus to the people. He's, he's fulfilling it in this teaching. And so these disciples come and they sit at the feet of Jesus, and this was at the time a very common practice. Uh, it's the same as if you go into a classroom and your teacher is, has their desk and you're sitting in all your desks. Back then, it was just they would they would stand or sit and you would sit like at the feet and you would listen to what they were saying. And so the disciples, the people whom he called, are sitting listening to him, and everybody else is just basically all around hearing what's what's being said. So it's unique because he, he's saying this to the people who he, he is called to follow him. But there's other people listening. And in the same way in the church today, I think a lot of people misunderstand the church because you know, I might even communicate something that I'm calling followers of Jesus to engage with. right? Like giving is a good example, right? We're not, we're not asking everybody in the world to give because what, giving is, is rooted in our belief in the gospel. And so people can hear that and they can be intrigued by it, but at the end of the day, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm projecting that to followers of Jesus. In the same way, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is letting them know, these people who choose to follow him, what they're following, what the kingdom of God really looks like. And in the same way, though, it's incredibly enticing for these people who are getting to hear everything Jesus is saying to these disciples. It's almost like if you maybe didn't like love your family growing up and you had a really good friend maybe in the neighborhood and you would go to their house and you just somehow interrupted their family meeting. You know, some families have like a Sunday night family meeting, right? You sit in the living room and you hash out whatever, and, uh, and you love this family, and you sit in this family meeting, even though you really like, shouldn't be there, you're not a part of the family, but they let you stay there because they love you, and you just get to hear the beauty of this family and how they love one another and how they've, they ask how their weeks were doing or they told them what they're doing in the next few weeks or some ways they can pray for them or whatever it may be, and you just become so attracted to this family that you want to be a part of it. This is what's going on with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is giving the disciples the, 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 the manual, if you will, of the kingdom and all these other people are getting to hear and, and be a part of it. And it's, it's a beautiful scene when you think about the listeners in this story. You have these disciples whom were nothing special, but then you have all of these other people who are just a ragtag group of people. And these disciples are unique because this isn't the 12. The 12 hadn't all been assembled yet. So it's just a few that he's called and he's teaching them. And all these other people are listening. And he gets into this phrase that we're gonna, that's repeated several times. Maybe you've heard it called the Beatitudes, which is basically, uh, the easiest way to put it is it's basically a made-up word. It's actually not in the Bible. Um, I know in your header it might say the Beatitudes. That's wasn't out there in the Bible. That's a made-up word. And uh, it comes from the Latin word Beatitudo, which means blessedness. This is the word used when, when you see blessed are. The Latin and Greek, uh, the Greek word is, if you, if you care, some people love the language, is makarios, which means blessed. And the reason why this matters is because we just throw around hashtag bless like all the time. We don't actually know what blessing means. Typically, when we throw hashtag blessed, it means something good has happened. Check out my beach scene or check out this drink I got. Like, it's just like literally just like good things, hashtag blessed, right? So when we read the Bible, unfortunately, we kind of do the same thing. We're like, oh, look at these hashtag blessed people. So we need to know what does blessed actually mean? It is not a hashtag, it's something much more than that. In, in the Greek, it was described as. Uh, a believer of Jesus, a believer of God, in fortunate position from receiving God's favor, and so that's like the simplest way to put it. In the Old Testament, there was curse and there was blessing; there was no in between. You were either with, God was with you, God was without you. You don't really need to know like um, good or bad. I mean, we know one's good, one's bad, and so blessing is synonymous with God's favor. It's, he's among you and He's with you, which is why we sang the blessing. Uh, but the, the word blessed, is it's, it's kind of been diluted because what it really means in the Greek is happy. But like I said, happiness, even for us, has been ruined. We think of happiness as almost always contingent on our circumstances. I'm happy if I got a raise. I'm happy if I ate a good meal. I'm happy if my kids are doing well. I'm happy if I got the degree I wanted. Like it's these circumstances that are always contingent on the things that are happening in our life. Whereas happiness then was more of this joy that we talk about in the Bible, this joy that that is not shaken by our circumstances. It's this inward hope and reality in what God is doing and doing in us. We read that, and we read blessed. So blessed, the best way to describe it, is, is God's favor among a person or people. And so we read this blessed, this is Jesus' initial, he's teaching all these people, and he starts off with, here's who's blessed, here's who God is showing favor on, let me let you know in on the kingdom and who's blessed in this kingdom, and that is what he does. The word blessing or blessed is actually really common in the Bible, even if you look, Psalm 1, uh, 1 verse 2, the first Psalm in the Bible, it says, how blessed is the one who does not follow the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the assembly of scoffers. Instead, he finds pleasure in obeying the Lord's commands. He meditates on the commands day and night. Psalm 119, one through three, says the same thing. How blessed are those whose actions are blameless, who obey the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his rules and seek him with all their heart, who moreover do no wrong but follow in his footsteps. The blessing is from God, the people whom God favors, and there's this relational clarity, this rightness. It's, it's following in the Lord and receiving blessing. Now, this is what the Jewish listeners would know. Blessing is essentially contingent on the, things that I, the, the way that I obey the Lord, right? And I, a lot of us think of that now. Like, you're having a bad day, like, dude, the Lord's just not blessing you, man. You just need to obey the Lord more. Like, we think that if we obey the Lord more, we'll be more blessed. And that was the Jewish understanding, and honestly, that's a lot of our understanding, because I, I like, to, I like, to, uh, I like to, to make this, like what if, what if we made modern, modern Beatitudes, right? And I made a few, like we think that blessed are those who work super hard and all the time, right? Blessed are those people. Blessed are those who go to church. Blessed are those who make lots of money. Blessed are those who are nice and try to be fair. Blessed are those who share worship songs and teachings and Bible verses on Instagram. Blessed are those who are in a small group or even better, lead a small group. Blessed are those who are tolerant of everyone. Blessed are those who are Republican. Blessed are those who are Democrat. Blessed are those who believe their own truth. Blessed are those who love without confrontation. We have all these blessings that we deem to be important, whether we're a Christian, whether we're not. There's, there's a cultural belief, and almost all of these are rooted in what we're doing, not who we are. And the Jews are experiencing this very same thing, and I'll prove it by reading from you a section from the uh, Apocrypha, which you're like, what is the Apocrypha? It is a... Um, a, a pieces of uh, the original Catholic Bible that's been taken out, but one of the, the people in there, the, his name is Jesus ben Sirah, Jesus was a common name, ben Sirah, And he was a Jewish teacher 150 years before Jesus. And he wrote basically his own version of Beatitudes. And I want to show you them here because I, this, is, this is what the Jewish people know. Because think about it, they're listening to Matthew and this is who they know. They know Ben-Sira, they know his teachings, they understand his readings. And this is what they would know. He says, Ben Sira, I can think of nine whom I would call blessed, and a tenth my tongue proclaims. He's giving nine Beatitudes. He says, A man who can rejoice in his children. Blessed is a man who can rejoice in his children. Blessed is a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Blessed is the man who lives with a sensible wife. Blessed the one who does not plow with ox and ass together. We just said ass in church. Uh, What that means is, if you're wondering, is an ox and an ass were essentially two different prestigious. Like an ox was very prestigious, an ass, not so much. And so when you put them together, it was, it was tainting the, the good with the bad. It was tainting the, the powerful with the weak. So if you're wondering what that means, there you go. The one who does not sin with the tongue, the one who has not served an inferior, the one who finds a friend, the one who speaks to attentive listeners, how great is the one who finds wisdom, but none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. Fear of the Lord surpasses everything. To whom can we compare the one who has it? This is what the Jewish people when, G, when Matthew puts the Sermon on the Mount, remember Matthew's not fully chronological. He, he, he's synthetic. He blends things together because he wants to show a picture. When he puts these Beatitudes that we're gonna talk about in this teaching, all of them are thinking about these blessings that they've heard, whether it was in Psalms, whether it was Ben Sirah, whether it was other rabbis they'd followed. They had all these different, this is what it looks like to be faithful to God. This is what it looks like for him to find favor is the things that I obey. And if you start to look at those blessings that Ben Sirah proposed, some of these don't seem right. Blessed is the one who has not served an inferior, meaning someone who hasn't stepped below their social class to help someone. Well, that doesn't seem right, right? That doesn't seem like God or Jesus at all. At this time, it was so heavily in honor-shame culture that you, wouldn't, you would never step below the ladder. You would never help a person below you. That was dirty. That was, that was embarrassing. That was, un, that was a tarnish your family name. It was never something you would do. Blessed is the one who does not plow ox and ass together. I know it's a funny idea, but Literally, they're saying, you can't put prestigious with low class. You just can't. You don't put those together. They don't go together. They don't deserve to go together. They're two different categories of life. Blessed is the one who sees to to see the downfall of his foes. If you read the Psalms, David is constantly praying for the downfall of his foes. This is our normal culture is we want bad people to be punished and we pray the downfall of our foes. And so this is what has been indoctrinated, the cultural indoctrination of these Jewish people. And in my own version, the modern, modern Beatitudes what we believe blesses those who make money and are busy and look powerful, whatever. We have our own set of what we believe is true blessing. And like I said, all of these are contingent on what we do and our status and our power and the way other people perceive us. And so what Jesus does is he blows both of those out of the water and he, he, he forms his own lane and these are the Beatitudes that Jesus talks about in the very beginning of something that he wants to communicate as the kingdom of God. And I, I, wanna, I wanna give us a frame of reference for these because a lot of times maybe you, you've read these, maybe you haven't. Um, if you have, you, you think like, this is the, the Christian to-do list. It's like, I need to do these things and then I'll be a true Christian. And uh, a guy named Stanley discrees, this is what he says. He says, these, these blessings that we're talking about they are not at the criteria to be a good Christian. This is simply a description of those who were following Jesus at the time. He says, Too often these characteristics of the blessings in Christian uh, history have turned into ideals or virtues, meaning we try to strive to attain them Poor In spirit, we mourn. And when we do that, we, we turn them into these formulas that we think will help us gain status and favor with God, which is, of course, is precisely the opposite of what he's trying to say. Remember how the modern and Ben sirah those were things we had to do in order to obtain blessing Jesus is doing the exact opposite. There are descriptions of the kinds of people to whom Jesus, in fact, first brought the kingdom of God to. Nowhere does Jesus tell us that we should try to be poor in spirit or mourning all the time or try to get ourselves persecuted. He simply announces the great surprise that the people who are not significant or honored in their society are precisely the ones who have received the honor to be the first among those let into God's kingdom. And so when we read these, it's not a lot of times we take them one at a time, which is what we're going to do. But you read them as this whole group. It's better to say, it's better to read it like, oh, the joy of the poor in the spirit, the mourners, of the gentle, of those who are sincere in what is right. It's, he's saying here's the category of the people who will be in this kingdom. And then when I pointed at that pile of trash on the screen, I said this is the kingdom of God. This is what people thought when Jesus announces, here's the people that I want first. Is he's broken, messed up group of people, in every way that you can think of, the least valuable. And he says, I'm going to actually let all of you know these are the people whom I want first. And, and so let's jump into some of these. The best way to describe them, this, uh, this is my own nerdy way of describing it. I love making chili. I swear Sarah and I make it at least once a week. And we eat it for three days. It's great. Great meal prep meal. Um, but whenever you make all the, you know, we do turkey chili, do the turkey, all the veggies and, um, and peppers and all that. And then you add all the spices, right? And you put in the spices and you think, that is so much spice, there's no way. That's like way too much. And then you mix it all around and you're almost like, man, I need more. Like, because it, it starts to seep into all of the chili and what was that pile of spice on top is now, is, now, is now in every part of the dish. And so when you taste it, you get these hints of these spices. Well, these Beatitudes are the spices, if you will, for the Sermon on the Mount. They are, going, you're going to taste these flavors, if you will, throughout the next 18, 20 weeks we're in this sermon. And you're gonna notice he's drawing, he's creating a foundation, and he's drawing it into all these different pieces of the Sermon on the Mount, like spices. So if you were ever uh, if you're ever thinking of like a way to describe these, it, it's spices. So the verse three, first of all, let's get into it. Verse three: Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Poor in spirit here, if you're wondering, a lot of people wonder, what is this phrase? And say, is it is it like an economic meaning? Like you're just poor. You don't make a lot of money. You're maybe homeless, or is it some sort of social class, or or is it spiritual? Like you're spiritually poor. You're spiritually we call it impoverished. You don't have the Lord. You don't follow God. And to be honest, they're actually kind of blended in both. The answer is yes, because typically when you are economically poor or socially poor at this time, you you are you are basically low class. You're not deemed worthy or valuable, and to be honest, your sacrifices, the way that you would abide in the temple procedures would be inadequate, and so you were spiritually poor. You were basically all of one. If you are one, you were the other, you, you were both. Um, and, and so the people who are following him in Jesus's first line is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. He's drawing upon really anyone in poverty that's, that's listening. He says, for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, belongs to them. In fact, one of the phrases that was used of these was considered beggars. It was people who needed to beg because they knew that they were not adequate enough to get the things they needed. And uh, Jesus here is drawing on uh, Isaiah 66. The New King James Version says, uh, he says, in, in, it says, For all those things my hand is made, and, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one whom I look... On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word, poor and a contrite spirit. He's drawing from Isaiah 66, and uh, the, the phrase we, we we don't really say like poor very often unless we mean like homeless. But what poor really means here is it really means humble and lowly. It means humble and lowly, not thinking much of yourself, other people not thinking much of you, and lowly. Um, and that's, that's really the phrase that, that it means, is humble and lowly. And we think about this. This is the, one of the first ones he says. Is, and we think about, okay, the first people that he's inviting into his kingdom are, are defined by the poor, lowly, and humble, the least effective people in the world by our standards. And these are the ones who get priority. It's, it's, uh, it's, but it's often, and this is profound in Jesus doing this, is it's often the people who are in, most, in those situations that are most willing to see the need. For Jesus and His Kingdom. In fact, one of the most unique things I think about—we try to figure out what is the devil, what is Satan, what are demons up to today in the Western world? What are they doing? How are they, how are they? ruining our faith? I talk about this before, and this idea that like we are essentially building our own kingdom. We think it's the way we want it to be, and Jesus tells us to repent, turn from our kingdom into view His kingdom. And this is what we're doing. We're describing Jesus and His Kingdom in Matthew. And Satan is actually, I don't think he's actually tearing down your kingdom. I actually think he's helping you build it so that you think truly your kingdom is better than God's. And Jesus says, hey, um, remember uh, wealth? And he calls it mammon. Remember wealth, possessions, status? Yeah, keep doing that and see how you follow God. He says, what benefit is it later in the sermon? He'll say, what benefit it is if you have everything in the world, but you forfeit your soul? And so Satan is probably not tearing you down. He's actually probably building you up in, in unhealthy ways. He's making you think you're better than you are. He's making you think that all your money is yours and that you're just financially secure and you don't need to worry, you don't need to be generous. He's making you think that you're just as attractive or a good person or as kind or whatever it may be that you think you are. And you keep building this kingdom until you look at Jesus and you're like, I don't need that, I got my own, look how great mine is. And so Jesus says, I'm gonna show you the most compelling people for my kingdom is the people who know their kingdom is, is what it really is. Because here's the thing, all of our kingdoms are trash. It's, uh, it's, it's almost like you, um, you know, they, they have these photos of some of these like European grocery stores where you go into the grocery store and it's just uh, photos on the wall and you scan the items you want and they like send them to you and it's just, it's just blank wall. And now from the outside, it looks like a, a grocery store of like stuff and you go in and it's just a bunch of like, wallpaper. And it's the same idea. It's like you, your kingdom might look really cool from the outside, but at the end of the day, when you get into it, there's damage, there's destruction, there's brokenness and there's sin, just like the humble, lowly and gentle's kingdoms. And all of us need to be able to turn from that. And so he says, here's the people who I'm inviting first. The people who know their kingdom is trash because the world around them is reminding them of that every day. And he says, and I think about even Jesus in the testing in the, the desert, we just wilderness. We just talked about a few weeks ago. What was Satan's final test for Jesus? It was, let me help you build your kingdom, Jesus, that you truly want apart from God the Father. I'll help you build a kingdom I know you really want. Let's just... Forget that plan and let me help you build yours the way you want it. That's literally the last temptation. That's, that's all Satan could do is his final, final attempt at Jesus was testing him and helping him build his own kingdom. The next one, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. What are they mourning over? That's what everybody wants to know, right? We don't fully know. It could be bereavement, um, a, a deep heartbreak or deep felt grief. It could be those who you know, some people say grieve over sin in the world as well as their own sin. They're mourning because they're realizing the reality and the futility, if you will, of their kingdom. How how it's just broken and in shambles, and it's causing tragedy. Um, and it could be, you know, people um, it's people who aren't apathetic to difficulties and hardship in life, who actually struggle and, and are acknowledging it. Um, I think about this idea of mourning, and he says they will be comforted. And one of the last verses in the Bible, in Revelation 21, towards the end of the Bible. It says that Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will not exist anymore or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have ceased to exist. Jesus is drawing upon the very people who are capable and, under, and, and, and willing to mourn in the midst of the hardship of the world. Verse five, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Anybody ever call anyone meek? You guys use that? Is that street language around now? I don't think so. I can't think of the last time I was like, yeah, he's a great guy. He's just super meek. <laughs> Doesn't even sound right. you say leek? Meek? Meek is synonymous with gentle. But to be meek is to basically think of yourself as not important. It's a big, if you've heard the C.S. Lewis quote, humility is not thinking less about yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. It's kind of that same idea. That's meekness. Meekness is, is thinking of yourself when you walk into a room you don't think of your not in like a bad, negative way, but you just think of yourself as least important. How can I help other people? How can other people be elevated? How can they, how can they enjoy and be joyful in the ways that I'm loving them? It's thinking of yourself as unimportant. And, and Jesus says, blessed are, uh, are those. And I think it's, it, the best way to describe it is, like, is, is this, because these are the people he's talking to. Remember, he's talking to disciples. Everyone else is listening. Those people that are listening have no influence in the world. They're the least influential people that you can think of. Think about the poorest person in the United States. They also can't vote. They also, no one replies to any, if they have problems, the police officers, social workers, they, they literally can't do anything. They can't change anything. They're just stuck. And I know that's hard for us to fathom because we live in America where everybody actually, whether it's hard or not, has, has the ability to sometimes be heard you're in other countries where you literally might not ever even be able to be heard. You're just, you're just surviving. And these people are just surviving. And she says, hey, the people who are, who are meek, who think of themselves as unimportant, who are gentle, blessed are they. It's almost like he's saying, blessed are the people who see the atrocities going on and they're deeply bothered by it, but they know they have no power to change it. They can like, see their kingdom in shambles. They can see other people's kingdom in shambles, but they're not going to just go try and be a superhero and go and fix everyone's kingdoms. They understand there needs to be something greater to fix all these kingdoms, And and Jesus says, You're going to inherit the earth. Through my power, you're going to be the people that I choose in the church to to change the world. Verse 6 Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. This one's unique hunger and thirst. Remember, Jesus was tempted with with hunger after his fasting. And he says, Those who hunger and thirst, a couple things about, practically about hunger and thirst, is most of you, as far as I know, you don't choose to be hungry or to thirst. It's just a it's just the way we are. It's just when you go a couple hours without water, you want water. You go a couple days without food, you want food. It's just the way we are, but it also assumes that we're longing for something that is not there. Right? We're like I need water, I need food. We're longing for something that is not there to hunger and to thirst. These people that are they're hunger and thirsting for righteousness to be made right in right relationship with people is people who are are just have an unmet longing to see the world made right. Now, to not see your world made right. There's a difference, right? How dare that person cut off in front of me? I just hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's not how that works. It is the, to the, for the world to be made right. We see the travesties of the world. We see the world in the way it is. We want it to be made right. And, and so I think about these people, the people listening to this teaching, we think of righteousness as like this spiritual thing. Well, in this Greek, it's actually the same word for justice. So if, if you change it and you say those who hunger and thirst for justice. We want to see things made right on earth. We want to see responsibility be taken for bad things. We want to see the good flourish in the ways that it should. And these very same people that are listening, uh, that are overhearing Jesus' conversation, are probably the most people who have experienced the most injustice and unfairness in the world. Lepers? Can't get near him. Can't be near him. Nobody wants to be around them. Demon-possessed? They usually throw them off into cemeteries. I mean, think about all these people. If you're if you're hurt, you can't work. Therefore, you're unclean. Therefore, you don't have a job. Therefore, you have all these things, right? Because it was they believe if you have a if you, if you don't have, if you have a deformity, right? It was a sin from your, your family, and it wasn't it wasn't atoned for, and so you're 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 a spiritual you're spiritually cursed, right? I mean, this is the reality. These people are hungering, thirsting for things to be made right. They're deprived of the reality of justice and righteousness. And Jesus says that you'll be satisfied. This is the person who's been wronged by someone else and they're longing to, see, to be, uh, for someone to make things right. The person who's been hurt, I think today, by the church, who has experienced deep hardship from abuse or trauma or divorce. These people feel wrong and they want it to be made right. They have a heart that God has and they notice the thing God noticed is, and it agitates them. Jesus promises them that they will, they will be filled with what they long for, which is God's justice and God's righteousness. Number seven, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is just an act of care, compassion to help someone who is hurting. It's typically someone lower of you in that moment, whether it's physically or they're hurt or they're emotionally, whatever. Financially, it's, it's showing mercy on someone who, caring compassion to someone who's hurting. and, and I think about this idea, Jesus will later talk about how we pray as followers of Jesus in his kingdom. This is how we pray. One of the phrases in the, in the, in the um, prayer is, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's mercy. That's mercy. He says, the people who are merciful to others. I don't know about you, but I think the people who are most merciful are the people who are most aware that their kingdom is also in shambles, and they give you grace and mercy when yours is in shambles. And the people who I know are most merciful are the people who are typically the most generous and they're typically not the most rich people I know because they realize the reality of the kingdoms around them. They're merciful and Jesus says, blessed are those who are merciful because God, when you pray for that, you'll receive that with others. And that's, that's the prayer that Jesus tells us to pray in a few chapters later. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in the heart for, they, for the pure in heart, they will see God. Pure in heart is just not seeking or gaining approval from men or women, from people. It's not seeking accolades or Status or wealth or whatever it may be—they only care about a relationship with God. And this is cool because when you're impure in, in heart, you'll see God. Meaning that you are fostering as a priority your relationship with Him, and that in that in that abiding is the Christianese word. In that in that remaining in Him, you'll see the things of Him because you are being filled by Him. In fact, one of the most provocative scriptures in this sermon that I'm going to talk about in a few weeks in Matthew seven. People come to Jesus and they say, and this is like at the end times, you say, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and do many powerful deeds? Then I will declare to you, Jesus says, I never knew you. This is the reality of our lives is that they do all these things. We can do good things for God. We can be like on 10 service teams in contrast. Good for you. But if you're not in union with God, if you're not pure in heart, all of those things can be pointless because Jesus says, if I don't, if, if I never know you, meaning if we're not in this relationship, we're not in union together, then I never knew you. Sorry, those are cool things. But at the end of the day, that's, that's the modern Beatitudes that we know is the things we do. That's the Ben Sirah Jewish people is what we do. And, and every single one of these, if you realize that we've talked about, are not things that you can do. They are the people who are there that Jesus is providing blessing over them. In fact, Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4, it says this, it repeats it who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, meaning who may be present with God, who can stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. Here he's just talking about people who will see other people in conflict with each other and they go out of their way to resolve the conflict with no benefit to themselves. That's like, I tell you what, uh, that is some of the toughest stuff and it doesn't mean you just gotta get in everyone's mess, but like, spending emotional energy and just time and energy with people who are just helping and loving and reconciling them is incredibly important. In fact, reconciliation is one of the highest kingdom, kingdom values. And I believe this because 2 Corinthians 5.18, it says, all, and, all, "...and all these things earlier are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation." The gospel is, is, is reconciliation, us broken people in our kingdoms being made right in the kingdom of God. That is reconciliation, and we do the same thing to others. If we are not in the business of reconciliation, we are really missing one of the highest kingdom values. In fact, later in, in the Sermon the, on the Mount, Jesus will tell you that if you have a wrong with a brother or a sister, that you stop whatever you're doing. If you're going to go tithe or be at the altar or give your whatever, you stop, you don't do it, and you go make things right, and then you go back and you do it because that's, that's the depth of that weight is reconciliation is so important to everything else you're doing in your heart and worship before God. Verse 11 and 12, the last two are kind of pieced together. Blessed are you who, when, when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on account of me. It is rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. What, and this is simple. I mean, we did a series on this uh, called Disrupted Discipleship a few months ago where we just talked about we're just not the norm anymore. Everything we do is weird. People don't like us. And I'm being very, like, lousy fair about it, but I think at some point he's just like, look, people are going to say mean things about you. They're going to falsely testify against you. I know it because in about a year and a half, I'm going to be falsely testified and killed for it. And we don't not we don't mourn that and, like, and, and be devastated by that, but we know that is the reality of what we're stepping into. This kingdom that we have, when you look at that pile of trash, everybody's going to look at it and be like, what a pile of trash. I mean, <laughs> what do we expect? We don't see beauty in that. God sees beauty in it, but we don't see beauty in it. And that, that's, that's the reality is Jesus is just prepping us. He's letting you know. And, and think about it. The people who are flocking him right now in all these crowds, they know that. They're spit on. They're ignored. They're relocated. I mean, they have no ground anywhere of value. And everybody, even not only that, they bullies them. I mean, it's they're like, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, I felt that, I know that. This is the kingdom, though. Is this what you expected? This is the kingdom that Jesus, when he first establishes, here's what this kingdom is that I'm bringing. This is what he says. And you think about it, and you think about these people, I think you think two things. You think, one, he's crazy because those are the most ineffective people in the world. They can't change anything. And two, you say, I want that. Because if that's the standard, how much grace do all of us have as broken people? If those are the people that Jesus' heart runs to, how much more is he running to yours? And, and, and I don't know about you, whether you're Christian or not, who doesn't like a Jesus like that? The guy that says, all the people that you don't like, you don't, that don't fit in in any category on earth, I love them and they're the first in my kingdom. That is just, say what you want about Jesus, but that is just the most powerful thing I think you can communicate. Even if you don't believe it to be true, you want it to be true. So back to the pile of trash as we close. The perspective that we have in our culture and the perspective that the Jews had when hearing this was, this kingdom is trash. And what's beautiful about the Beatitudes, like I said, it's almost like they're to be read in a paragraph, not line by line, because it's not this and then this. It's all of these people in this realm are blessed. They are nothing that they do. Like I said, we don't go and do those things. He's letting us know, hey, the people around, let me tell you, all you are blessed, because here's why. All of the things that the culture tells you are trash. I'm actually in the right light. I'm showing you the truth of how you are first in this kingdom. And so what he does here is as we we stare at this pile of trash, we start to see a picture, and I want to read this, and um, don't turn the slides yet, but I want to read who is this kingdom, who is a part of it, and, and we know that if, if, you're, if you're a king of a kingdom, that you represent the kingdom, right? That's the beautiful thing about God, is God is, in any other religion, is this up-high God, and he has his domain that he wants, but God in the, the God we believe in, the Yahweh, the Father, God the Father, sends his son so that he might not only have his kingdom, but he might have a king that dwells in and among it and has felt every single experience that we have felt as a human. And so we ask, number one, who is poor in spirit? Who is poor in spirit? Remember how poor meant gentle and lowly? In verse in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus has, says one phrase in the entire Bible that is about his heart, and this is what he says. He says, take my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and in that you'll find rest for your souls. If we remember Jesus' upbringing, his genealogy was just full of devastation, destruction, any type of sin and tragedy you could think of. He lived in a podunk town. He had to run because people were trying to kill him. His mom and his dad were nothing special. And Jesus knows about being poor in spirit. Number two, who mourns? Jesus in John 11 weeps and mourns over the unbelief in Lazarus' death. You remember his close friend dies, and people just don't believe that it's possible he could be made right, or come alive, and, and, and Jesus Um, He uh, resurrects him. Matthew 23, he mourns over Jerusalem as he's entering into it because of their inability to grasp the heart of God and their impending demise. Who is meek and gentle? Who thinks themselves as unimportant? Matthew 20, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The last will be first and the first last. Who hungers and thirsts for righteousness? Jesus fulfills Isaiah as he sets the captives free and sets liberty to those who are oppressed. Who is merciful? Jesus has a heart for righteousness and mercy. In Matthew 9 36, he has such great compassion for the sick and hurting that it causes him to literally have a physical stomach ache. Who is pure in heart? Jesus is more concerned with the will of the Father who sent him in the world than anything else, whether it's in his testing, whether it's in the night before he knows he's going to be betrayed and he's praying, Father, take this cup from me. He is pure in heart. Who is the peacemaker? The one who reconciled the world to himself through his death, who is persecuted for righteousness. He inserted himself, Jesus, into dangerous situations between people who not only hate him, but who ultimately tortured and killed him. You start to look at this pile of trash and you take one step at a time and you, you start to look at it from over here a little bit more. And then you realize, oh, it's it's kind of starting to look like something. And you take another step. And you're starting to see pieces of it, and you're starting to realize this is something much greater than that. And then finally, you look just through the right lens, and you start to realize finally at the end of it, that this pile of trash, this kingdom that we see with the right perspective, is this beautiful masterpiece. And it's, it's, it's just thinking about the, the viewpoint that we have on earth, that the kingdom that we see in our own lives, we think is just amazing, and it's great, and it's just not. And I could spend a lot more time to tell you that, but in the, in the end of things, when we see this, Bernard Prost spent just forever putting this together. And he, he, he made it after this, 30, uh, this guy who was a, just a postman, just a simple guy who created this beautiful work. I'm actually going to talk about that next week. This is the kingdom of God and when we look through this, these blesseds, we not only see the kingdom, but we see a portrait of the king. That he has fulfilled every single one of these and he's experienced them all of them. And that's that's the beauty of, of Jesus. That he has not only said, here's my kingdom, it doesn't look great, but here's my kingdom, I'm in and among it, I've felt all these things and blessed are those people. So I wanna invite the band up as we close. We, we uh, often uh, we take a, a time of reflection, which for us is um, a reminder uh, of just to, maybe to reflect something that stirred you in the message, in our worship or in the story. Um, and so we give you an opportunity to do a couple different things. First one is bread and cup, uh, which is what we call the Lord's Supper, and that is for the followers of Jesus who want to remind themselves of this kingdom, of the sacrifice that Jesus made so that we're able to be a part of his kingdom, and so there's some in the back. If you don't have one, you can go grab one, and uh, we'll give you time to take that. You can also just sit and, and, and just reflect, and then lastly, we have two or three people in the back who are here to pray for you and love to pray for you. Um, in any way, whether it's something small, something big, we'd love to pray for you. And so the will people in the back have a lanyard on and they can pray for you. And then in about a minute or two, we're gonna sing one last song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.